0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Amen. I want to thank everyone for coming out. Again, keep Brother Braley in your prayers as well as Brother Charles, Stuart, and his wife Shannon and the other kids. Pray that the Lord would watch over them as well. I know they would love to be here at this moment. But we appreciate Brother Stewart taking the time out to help Brother Braley and keep an eye on him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, already we're humbled by what we've sang. Lord, we've sang of your majesty, of your power. We've sang of your wisdom, your grace. We've sang of your justice, your wrath of Your love, Your compassion. Father, we're humbled this morning. And yet we're greatly encouraged in what Christ has procured for us on Calvary. Oh, dear Lord, we thank You so much for our wonderful salvation. We thank You, Lord God, that You've come and give us an understanding that we might know Him who is the true God. Father, we pray that, Father, this morning You'd be honored and glorified in the preaching of Thy Word Father, I pray that you would be, uh, you would lift up your son, and that he would draw all men unto himself. And I pray that we'd be encouraged this morning, Lord, by reminiscing on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the gospel, the preaching of Thy word. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds not for the temple, but for the eternal. And that Father, in His resurrection, we would see our resurrection. Lord, we'd look beyond the things of this present life. And Lord, we set our affections on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father. May we this morning be lifted up and risen with Christ through the preaching of thy word that we might behold the things of eternity, that the worldly things would diminish and vanish from our sights and our thoughts. And may be ever glorifying to God. Father, we ask now your blessings. Upon everything, for we ask these things in Christ's name for his honor and glory alone. Amen and amen. If in this life only, verse 19 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This is an amazing statement Paul makes. I was noticing. In the headlines of the news the past couple of days, someone speaking about hope said this Easter Sunday, which the world celebrates as the resurrection of Christ, says delivers above all a message of hope to suffering people. And it made me even think more about Paul's statement here in First Corinthians. For he does not say that these people have no hope. He says they do have a hope. A hope in Christ. And yet he said this hope is, of all men, most miserable. Why would Paul say such a thing? Because their hope in Christ is limited merely to this temporal life. And that's what the headline actually meant. Today around the globe, countless people are gathered together in buildings, assembling together. They proclaim to be remembering the resurrection of Christ. And in some strange way, they hope that in doing such a thing, that the world will become a better place. That man is able to usher in peace and prosperity. And man is so foolish that he hasn't learned over the last six, 7000 years there is no peace, and man cannot usher in peace. And the only hope anyone has is in Christ, and it's not for temporal blessings. And yet, it's not only this one day a year. Beloved, over the last 40 years as a Christian and over 33 as a pastor, over the last 33 years, I have sadly seen people who profess loudly a hope in Christ, and yet I found out after time that that hope was only limited to this present life as long as Christ gave them temporal blessings, as long as, life, as, long as Christ blessed them with health and riches and pleasures and prosperity. That's all they needed, but they never ever considered Hoping in Christ in regards of death and eternity. That's why Paul said these who have hope in Christ only in this life are of all men most miserable. The more I contemplated and considered this text, the more I became both bewildered and amazed, which is not unusual even after 40 years of reading Scripture. For this divine exhortation was not spoken in a public forum, nor amongst those who knew nothing of Christ. And we need to pay heed to that. But it was spoken in a letter written to the church at Corinth. It was written to believers. To those whom Paul declared in chapter 1 were sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. He even complimented them that they do not come behind in the knowledge of Christ. Moreover, to them whom Paul also declared in this same chapter in the beginning verses, received the gospel he preached, he said they stood therein, by which he also declared they were saved in the beginning of this chapter. Yet he exhorts them to keep in memory, hold that tight, what he preached to them. Keep it tight, hold it in memory, what I preached to you, he said in this same chapter, verses 1 and 2, unless they believed in vain. Now that's an amazing statement again. Paul said there's a possibility that your faith is in vain. It's a possibility you have believed in vain. This amazes me that we find this in a letter written to believers. Doctrinal regeneration is unbiblical. You said, I don't know what that is. You're not missing anything. If you do, just so that you know, it's unbiblical. Ask the thief on the cross if he knew anything about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Had he joined a church, been baptized. A few minutes earlier, he was cursing Christ. And a few minutes later, he was asking Christ if he could join him in his kingdom. And Christ says, sure, you'll be with me today. No time in between to learn of the just doctrine just justification by faith, was there? Oh, the foolishness of men. He thinks he's so smart and wise. That's why shows him the foolishness of the world. That's why preaching is called the foolishness of preaching. This letter is written to Christians, professing Christians. Beloved, the church of God has always had those amongst her who have sought to pervert and corrupt the truths of God, be they the legalistic Judaizers of Galatia, book of Galatians, or the ungodly men of Jude, whom Jude said, creep in unawares, changing the grace of God into lasciviousness, or even those who in our text would deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More often than not, the fiercest contention for the faith once delivered unto the saints will be found amongst her own ranks. Not out in the world. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? But it's true. You know, Christ cast out more demons in the synagogue than he did anywhere. For there will always be tares and wheat, goats and sheep, and even wolves until Christ returns. Some people today believe they have the wisdom and understanding to be able to rip the tares out from amongst the wheat. Foolish men they are. Christ even warned his disciples. They said, "Shall we go in and take, remove the tares?" Christ said, "No, that's not your job. You wouldn't, you can't do that because in removing the tares, you'll injure the wheat. It's not our job to pull out and identify the tares." And the wheat. It's not our job to identify the goats and the sheep. It's our job to preach the Word of God and let God do the dividing asunder. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. These are words of Paul the pastor not merely the preacher. Because by sound doctrine, he would seek both to exhort and to, con- and to convince the gainsayers, like he's told Timothy in the book of Timothy. He said, he said to Timothy, he said, seek to both exhort and to convince the gainsayers. A gainsayer is merely someone who has contradicted and denied the truth. Exhort the believer, convince the gainsayers. How do you do that with the truth? John Calvin said it best. He said, for a preacher ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, the uh, the other for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Two voices. End of quote. Good quote. pastor is to gather the sheep and warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Paul does this with sound doctrine. And if Christ be not risen, he says in verse 14, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. He said, that makes us, of all men, the most miserable. If your faith is vain and our preaching is vain. Because then our only hope in Christ is in this present life. How absurd is that? How preposterous such a hope would be. And yet there's countless people today sitting in churches, not just on this Sunday that many people visit church only twice a year on Easter Sunday and on Christmas, not just this Sunday, but countless people every Sunday, every Sunday. Listen to me, I guarantee you, every Sunday there's countless people that sit amongst the believers whose hope in Christ is merely in this life. And they know of themselves. Listen to me. They know of themselves. They are of all men most miserable. Because the preaching doesn't give them any comfort. Their own faith that they profess to have doesn't give them any comfort. And the worst of all, Paul says in this text as well, is they're left in their sins. And they know that. That's why Paul would explain vehemently throughout this whole chapter the importance and significance of the resurrection of Christ. Do you know the resurrection of Christ is the very foundation upon which the gospel must be preached? It is the cornerstone without which there is no gospel. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not believing that somebody raised from the dead. Not believing in the biblical story of Sunday school. But knowing and believing in your heart, that Christ is raised from the dead, and by faith in that, you are risen with Christ. It's not merely believing a story. And I'll get to that verse in a minute, but Paul says in Colossians, If ye then be risen with Christ, Many people today will hear the lovely story of Christ raising from the dead. They'll hear about the stone being removed, about the grave being empty. They'll hear about John and Peter and Mary. And they'll hear about all these things. And yet, that's all it will remain to be is merely a story. It'll have no effect upon them. Well, Christ is raised from the dead to give me a better life. He's here to keep me or uh, deliver me from my sufferings in this present world. No, He was raised from the dead to give you eternal life. To justify us before God, to raise us up to the things of heaven. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father, for your life is hidden with Christ when he shall appear. It's all about eternity. The preaching is about eternity. Our faith is about eternity, nothing about this temporal life. This temporal life is nothing but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's all about eternity, and yet people have hope in Christ only in this present world. So how does Paul both exhort and convince the game with this verse? Well, first of all, he said, If Christ be not risen, and there's no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Think about that for a minute. What a statement that is. Especially as true believers if we understand the importance of the preaching of the Word of God. Paul said if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's profitless. What would be more miserable than to sit under the preaching of God's Word and yet know not its effectual and quickening power? And yet how many people this very day and almost every Sunday sit under the preaching of the word of God and the preaching is to them vain. It has no profit. It's not effective. It doesn't work in them. They know not the power of it. They sense not the changing power of the preaching of the word of God. Especially the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To sit into that and know nothing of that power. To sit under that and know nothing of the effectual working of the preaching of God's worth upon our faith and our lives. Changing our thoughts. that would, That is miserable. That's why Paul says you're of all men most miserable. You sit under the preaching of God and it does nothing for you. It does nothing for you. to hear the same word of god which works effectually in god's people yet you yourself are left unaffected and unchanged by its divine truth it's in vain if christ has not risen from the dead then our preaching is in vain it doesn't profit anybody it's empty you say, how is that even possible? Well, Christ said something like that is possible in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. He says, but hear, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand. By hearing you shall hear. You shall not understand. And seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. Quoted from Isaiah. Christ said that's what's happening with these people. Oh, they hear but they don't understand. They see, and yet they perceive not. That's preaching in vain. Paul says that's what happens if Christ is not raised from the dead. Our preaching is vain. Dear beloved, I do not expect those, if there's any amongst us this morning that know not Christ, to understand the significance of that. But as Christians, we should... Can you imagine sitting under the preaching of the Word of God and never being effectually moved or changed by the preaching of God's Word? I understand not why people do not make every effort to go to church to hear the preaching of God's Word. My wife and I was talking this morning about how in the generation we live in, how many so many professing Christians do and live the way they live. The preaching of the Word of God is our source of life as believers. To sit under the preaching of the Word of God, assembled as God's elect in one place to worship God, is something that we cherish above all things in this present life. To have the preaching of the Word of God affect us mightily, to stir in our hearts, to change our attitudes and our beings, we desire nothing more than to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is our highest desire in this present life. Oh, to hear it preached! We understand what Paul means when he said it's It's vain. What I've always enjoyed most about preaching is not the effects of preaching after the sermon, but that Sunday, that Monday morning when I wake up and the effects of the sermon are still in my heart and my mind, and I'm still dwelling upon it and thinking about it, and it carries with me through the week. I'm telling you, there's something in that that gives the believer such great delights the preaching of the cross the preaching of Christ to hear Paul say it's in vain is a terrifying thing for the believer and yet so many professing believers can go without the preaching of the word of God without it even causing any amount of sorrow and sadness but a true believer, oh, when sickness or ill or tragedy or something intervenes and keeps us from Sunday worship and sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, the whole week is different. It's not the same. We're lacking something. We're lacking something. Something's missing. Something's out of place. Why? Because we understand what the preaching of the Word of God is. And to hear Paul say it's in vain is a tormenting thought for a believer. And again, don't forget, he's written this letter to Christians. So there are some Christians in there that are falling under a wrong influence. Somebody's saying the resurrection is not real, it's not true, and they're beginning to be influenced. So Paul wants them to come to understand you're being influenced by the wrong thing. Somebody's trying to overthrow your faith, which Paul says two individuals tried to do, who said the resurrection has already passed and overthrown the faith of some. And he's saying, listen to me, can you understand me? If Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. And they're beginning to think, oh no. God forbid that the preaching be a thing. Yet is he's also exhorting and condemning those who are teaching such a thing. Your hope is in Christ in this world only. You are of all men most miserable. So he's doing both. He's preaching to both. He's exhorting and he's convincing the gainsayers. So preaching does. I've seen over the years how preaching the Word of God, the same text, everyone's hearing the same text, everybody's hearing the same words of God preached, and yet how it can draw one's heart and affections out to Christ while it draws conviction and guilt in the heart of another. Such is the preaching of the Word of God. If your only hope in Christ is in this present world, then the preaching of God's word will be vain to you, empty, unprofitable. It's useless. Not that God's word of itself could ever be vain. Don't believe that. But because your hope in Christ, because your hope in Christ is only in this world, you make the hearing of his word for yourself vain. God's word of itself could never be in vain. It's like the Pharisees whom Christ said made the word of God of none effect through their traditions. Well, God's word is sovereign. How can that be possible? Christ said himself who made the word of God of none effect through their traditions. Made the word of God of none effect. It's almost like that verse that throws so many hyper Calvinists off in the in Hebrews when it said they limited God in the wilderness. Well, wait a minute, sinful man cannot limit God. God's sovereign. Now, Paul said in Hebrews, in their minds they limited God. They didn't limit God in their minds. They did. And here is the same thing. They make it none effect. It's in vain. The preaching is in vain. For the preaching of the Word of God sets one's hearts and affections on things above, on eternity, on Christ who has raised them from the dead. Do you know that? That's what preaching does. Preaching is not basically set, though we do preach the word and effect that it helps us in this present life, but its main goal is to set our hearts and minds and affections for the things of eternity, never merely on the temporal. When it talks about the temple, you have Christ and Matthew going, why are you worried about tomorrow? Look at the birds. Look at this. Look at how God feeds all these things. He knows what you have need. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's about eternity. So when the Word of God is being preached, it sets our hearts and our minds and affections on the things of eternity. Look well, over in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, very well-known passage of Scripture. I've quoted it a few times. Colossians 3, 1-4. to four. Listen to Paul. If ye then be risen with Christ. If Christ is not risen, then we're not risen. But if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, Set your affections and things above, on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. You see how it sets them on things above, on eternity, on Christ. That's what the preaching of the word of God does. Yet if the preaching is in vain, the only thing we have left is the temporal. I see and hear so many professing Christians today when God blesses them with health or with riches or material things. Oh, God is so good to me. God is such a blessing to me. And they're ready to praise and thank God for all these temporal blessings. Yet you never see them, you never hear them talk about the eternal things. It's only temporal things. Oh, no, if God don't give them those temporal things, which Satan can also <laughs> do as well, He tempted Christ with the earthly kingdoms, right? The God of this world. When God doesn't give him those things, they're disappointed. Oh, life's not going like it is. I'm not making enough money on the job. I've got financial problems. I've got health problems. I've got family problems. I've got job problems. And they're miserable. They're miserable because they come to church and they hear the preaching, yet it doesn't Encourage them. It doesn't help them to set things on, on the things above. It doesn't take their hearts and minds off the worldly things that weighs them down because the preaching is in vain. So many professing believers are like that today in every church. That's why they like the moment of emotionalism. You know, you get the flesh stirred up. You get the charismatic movement, You get the guitar and the music playing. And you get people stirred up. And the music starts stirring up emotions. And they get tearful and they start shouting and crying or whatever they do. But when they go home and reality sets in, they're not singing anymore. They're not flying away anymore. Well, that Psalm 100 stuck in my head all night, brother. <laughs> I'm telling you, I woke up singing it. <laughs> You're right, it sticks to you. The child of God who knows and understands and desires the preaching of the Word of God is faith, becomes sound in the things of eternity. And it's like in times of trouble and trial. As great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, my Father. God is a refuge and a help, a very present help in time of trouble. Where does that come from? Oh, yes, of course it comes from reading. But oh, dearly beloved, never, never. And I'm spending probably too much time on this first one, but there's nothing you can replace. You can't replace preaching. You know, in, in the history of God's church and in Scripture, one of God's judgments upon His people when he, is when He removes the oracles of God, when He removes the prophet, when He removes the preachers of the Lord. That's one of the judgments of God upon His church. He silences His divinely called oracles. And let me tell you something. There are countless churches this very day, this very moment, Who doesn't have a pastor. And then there's countless more churches that have someone in the pulpit who should never have been in the pulpit. Read scripture, study it, pray over it, meditate upon it, take private time along with God in it. But nothing nothing shall ever replace preaching in this present life. You need to have that balance. YouTube doesn't do it. YouTube doesn't do it. I've told you before of a story, and I'm weary of not telling it again, but uh, a contemporary of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was preaching in Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Spurgeon's Old Church, and he was telling the story of when Martin Lloyd-Jones was called on to preach the funeral services of kindergarten children. A mudslide had happened in eastern Wales, and a mudslide came down and killed every child in that kindergarten. Over 100 children were killed. And he was called on to preach the sermon. And that day when he was telling the story about it, he said he flew with Martin Lloyd-Jones to Wells and on the way there, he said he was thinking within himself, what shall a man say? What shall a man say? The families that lost their young children in a mudslide. And he preached that sermon and I was so fixated on that sermon that he preached that day. I was just Everything else was lost, and it was just an amazing thing to be there and to be. Pre- That's only happened once in my life. Now I've heard preaching that was good, and I enjoyed it, but it only happened once in my life to that measure. So I said, I got home to Germany, and I said, I'm going to get the CD and I'm gonna, a DVD. I'm going to get that, and I'm going to have that forever. And I got the DVD, plugged it in, listened to it, and I thought, is this the same sermon? It, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you had to be present. I'm telling you, sermon audio is okay, YouTube's all right, but I'm telling you, there's something to the physical presence and fellowship of God's people gathered together physically together to worship God when the Word of God is preached, physically present that you cannot replace with technology. Our preaching is vain. Oh, send out, the psalmist said in Psalm 43, Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Where? To my next new car? My new home? My new job? No. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Let them take me, escort me, usher me to heaven where God dwells. We sang in that hymn, Unceasing Praise. In his presence, can you imagine that there's unceasing praise in the presence of God? Just thought I'd throw that out there. I thought that was kind of amazing. Christ said himself, "Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away forever. O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven psalm nineteen eighty nine No, our preaching is in vain because your only hope in Christ is in this present world. It therefore leaves you empty, unfulfilled, and comfortless. Therefore, Paul says, You are of all men most miserable. That's one. Yet Paul also says, If Christ be not risen, leaving your hope in Christ only in this present world, not only is our preaching in vain, but here's something else. He said, Your faith also is in vain. And don't misunderstand Paul's statement. Not that true faith, which is a gift of God, Ephesians chapter 2. You're saved by grace through faith, yet not of yourselves, that it's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. True faith is not vain. It's a gift of God. And true faith author is, and finisher is Christ. So he's not talking about a true faith. He says your faith. It's a faith of your own making. One which is vain, empty, and profitless. One which brings no real and lasting comfort. A faith only interested in worldly and temporal things. But it's not a heavenly faith. He says your faith. What's the difference? Remember what Paul said? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Galatians 2.20 And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's true faith Paul says here your faith in vain oh I've got faith boy do I hear that a lot on the job from professing Christians oh i got faith but let the slightest trial trouble come in their lives and they're crushed let not things go their way and they're crushed because their faith is simply in hope in Christ in this temporal world But see, because our faith, true faith, is set on things above where Christ is and sitteth. Because our faith is Christ's faith, and that's the life we live in Christ. I'm not saying we don't get knocked down sometimes by tragedies and troubles in life. We do. But that faith enables us to rise back up and realize the trying of our faith is precious above gold. The trying of gold. (gasps) We count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of our faith worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope. You see? Hope. Oh, yeah, we can get thrown back as Christians, but we rise back up. If your hope of Christ is only in this world, your faith is vain. It's empty. It's profitless. comfortless. It gives you nothing. Look over in Hebrews chapter 11 been looking at this verse for a few weeks now. Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Isn't that not a paradox? Like before church, I was speaking to David about that, the responsibility and of man and the sovereignty of God and how many people have a hard time balancing those nice things. Same thing here. This is the paradox. Faith is substance. Of what? Things hoped for. There's that word hope again. Hope for. The evidence. Proof. Of what? Things not seen. That's amazing, isn't it? What's well, faith? Take it to Hebrews 11.1 1, and they'll go, What? <laughs> But look at the effects of it. Look in verse 13 of the same chapter. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned, but now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That's the mindset true faith gives the believer. That's a mindset those who have hope in Christ only in this world do not have. So, when sickness comes, when death knocks on the door, you're of all men most miserable because your faith doesn't go beyond this temporal life. It doesn't go beyond this temporal... Death is horrifying. Eternity is unimaginable. That's why your faith is vain. It has no consolation in Christ. No comfort from Scripture. No peace with God. No hope outside this present world. Making you, therefore, of all men most miserable is what Paul says. But true faith overcometh. I love that word. In 1 John 5, 4, true faith overcometh. That means subdues, prevails, conquers. True faith overcometh the world. True faith unites us with Christ. Galatians two twenty. I just quoted that. It unites us with Christ. You know nothing of Christ. You have no consolation in Christ. You don't overcome the world because your faith in Christ, in hope in Christ, is only in this world. Therefore, you're miserable. True faith brings justification before God, which in turn grants us peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, Romans 5, we now have peace with God. Peace with God. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Stay with me. A few more minutes. First Peter chapter 1. Again, true faith. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3. A faith that is only hope in Christ in this world does not have this. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us, watch this, un- again, unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's hope and resurrection again. Wonderful how they go together, don't they? Lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What? To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved on earth for you. No. I'm resting Scripture here. Reserved in heaven for you. You see, where faith. Rest, you see where faith looks? you see where faith lives? Eternity, Christ, and God. Who are kept by the power of God, true faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There it is again, eternity, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. Boy, there's a sermon there in them three words that I preached many years ago. If need be. Who determines if it's necessary or need be? God. And therefore, I can rest in it, whatever it is, because He determines it to be so. Wonderful text there. If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trying trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory in this world. No, again, at the appearing of Jesus. You see how faith looks to eternity again? But those whose hope in Christ is only in this world is vain. Their faith is vain. It doesn't go beyond that. They're not even considering that. But look at here, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. (laughs) That's a sermon of itself. Whom having not seen, you love. (laughs) You know, Christians love somebody more extremely, ultimately, immeasurably more than anybody they've ever seen. They love somebody they have not seen. Extremely more than they've ever loved anybody they've seen. That is amazing work of faith. And you know what? If your hope in Christ is only in this world, you know nothing of that. Therefore, ye are of all men most miserable because you're professing something you don't know. You don't have. In whom though now you see him not, yet believing uh, faith, you rejoice the joy and speak full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What's the end of faith? Receiving the end of your faith. What's the end of your faith? Even the salvation of your soul. There it is. Eternity. Faith never fixates on this present, but always on eternity. The end, as like the beginning of true faith, Christ. He's the author and the finisher. It's in Christ. And then, if Christ be not risen, and let me just quickly go over this third one because of time. I wish I had more time, but this third one, actually there's a fourth one as well, but then if Christ be not risen and your hope in Christ is only in this world, this is the worst of them all. Let me tell you what your condition is before God. Let me Paul will tell you, you are yet in your sins. Look back in 1 Corinthians. What Paul says. Chapter 15. Verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. That's terrible. Because you profess a faith that's vain. Preaching is vain to you. And the worst of all, in all that hoping in Christ in this present world, you're still in your sins. Do you know what that means? Do you have any idea? Peter talks about those who've known the truth and rejected it. He said it was better that they were never born. As the hog, as the sow returns to the mud and the mire, Paul warned them, unless you have believed in vain, have you believed in vain? Again, he's exhorting the believers that are beginning to fall for this heresy. And he's condemning those who's producing it, who's spreading it. You're in your sins. And he looks at the Christian and said, Do you realize what that means? If Christ is not risen, you're yet in your sins. Therefore, Paul says, You are of all men most miserable. And we look at we could look at more verses in Romans four and Romans eight concerning that, 1 Peter as well. But Paul says, all these things, our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. And even those who've passed on before you, they're perished. If Christ is... You see how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is? It is the very foundation of the Gospel. Why? Oh, time does not avail me to go into that in great detail. But if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we're still in our sins. Because it was all... See, Calvary would have been nothing if Christ didn't raise out of the grave. God the Father had to approve and accept the sacrifice. And that evidence is seen as Him raising from the dead because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, sinners can't pay it. They remain in death for eternity. There's no coming out of that. But because Christ raised from the dead, it was evidence. Romans 1 says, proving He was the Son of God and the sacrifice was pleasing to God, He was raised from the dead. God the Father is justified. The wrath of God is justified. The law of God is justified. Now we are in Christ, uncondemned before God, in the righteousness of Christ because He's risen from the dead. But if He's not risen from the dead, you're yet in your sins. But I don't want to leave you on a negative note. Let me leave you on a good note. First Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we revolve in the most miserable. It would be terrible if Paul stopped there, but he didn't. Look at the next verse. But now, don't you always love it in God's word when it says "but now"? Every time a "but now" be whatever follows that, it's always wonderful. But now, but now. Is Christ risen from the dead? So he exhorts those who are beginning to be influenced, but now is Christ risen from the dead? Your face not in vain, the preaching's not in vain. you're not in your sins. Your loved ones that's gone on before you, and he says that later in this in this chapter, the loved ones that went on before you they're not perished. He'll bring with them when he comes, and then he turns to those that are spreading this false truth. You're yet in your sins. Your faith is vain. Preaching is vain. And you'll spend eternity with those who've perished without Christ. But now is Christ risen. Verse 51 of the same chapter and I'll close with these verses. Behold, I show you a mystery. (laughs) It's a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for so much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a wonderful way to end this 15th chapter but now is Christ risen oh beloved I hope and pray that your hope in Christ is not only limited to this present life but I hope and pray that your hope in Christ is a hope that is everlasting and rested and steadfast in the resurrection of Jesus Christ not merely believing in the story but knowing what it is to be raised with Christ Amen. May God give us grace to always look to the things of eternity, to always be prepared for eternity. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, <coughs> excuse me. May you now, Lord God, be honored and glorified in taking your word and, Lord, encouraging us, speaking to our hearts. I pray you'd be with those this morning that hear that, Lord, might know in their hearts and their minds. And even in their conscience. That Lord, their hope in Christ is only in this world. Their faith produces nothing. There's no consolation in Christ. <clears throat> no comfort of the Scriptures. Lord, the preaching is vain. It leaves them empty. Lord, I pray that, Father, as You do that, You'd show them their need of Christ. Lord, I pray that You'd show them their need of Christ. Lord, please show them their need of Christ. And Lord, I pray that You would encourage us as Your children to always be reminded of the significance, the importance, and the blessing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. As the world seeks to vainly remember it once a year, (coughs) to no avail, I pray that we as Christians would live every day a resurrected life in Christ. Lord, I pray that You'd be honored and glorified in all that's said and done, what's done today. Lord, we ask these things in Your name and for Your glory. eh? Amen and Amen.